Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Hey, Real Life Church, God bless you. It's Pastor Jim. It's good to be with you again. We are deep in our series on how to be a better heretic, and we're looking at those places where the scriptures and the church have historically laid down cautionary tape and said, this way is not safe, don't go this way. We're looking at various teachings from the ancient church and through history that the church said, no, this is not right. This is not the way to go. And yet many of those teachings that have been dealt with historically are still alive and well today, as you've seen if you've been following through this series uh, on the podcast at reallife.la. Don't forget that if you are sitting at home sweating this morning, the air air conditioning is on uh, at Real Life. Uh, And I know some of you have been sitting out there contemplating coming to Real Life. You've been thinking about it. You've only watched this online. Everybody I meet for the first time at church says, hey, yeah, I watched online first. If you're thinking about it, this is the summer to come down. Come use our air conditioning that's on anyway instead of yours. Uh, And I look forward to seeing you down here. Uh, We are... We're, gonna, we're coming close to the end of this series. We're going to look at a couple more of the ancient heresies that are still alive and well today. And today, I want to look at the most significant wrong pathway followers of Jesus tend to go down. And this was true in the life and ministry of Jesus, and it has been true in every season of church history, and it is absolutely true today. This is the most tempting wrong pathway for followers of Jesus to go down. That's what we're going to look at today. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you that you love us and that you call us together to be community and you set us on right paths. I thank you that your word is true and your spirit has the power to reform us and, and set us on right paths when we have gone astray. So Jesus, call us back to you today. It's only by the power of your spirit that we can return to you. Put your spirit in our hearts And call us close. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. All right, I want to read to you a teaching from the life of Jesus. This is a parable of Jesus from Luke chapter 18. And in this, we're going to see Jesus addressing the most significant offense that he ever dealt with. The one thing he goes back and addresses over and over and over again. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Uh, Fasting was the historical Christian and Jewish practice of abstaining from food for a day to dedicate oneself to prayer. And a tenth, a tithe, was the guideline for for financial giving set out by the scriptures. So I, I I follow all the rules. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. This is this is a Jewish person who takes money from Jewish people to give it to the Roman 
uh, overlords whom the Jewish people hate. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus is most at odds with the religious legalists, the self-righteous religious legalists who use their faith to look down on and to condemn other people. Jesus is more offended by religious legalism than any other vice. And he goes back to it over and over and over again. It's the Pharisees who will ultimately hand him over to be crucified because so much of his ministry has been an affront to them. And so many of his parables have been told against them. Let's, uh, let's go back and make sure we understand the, the history of the Pharisees. Back several hundred years before Jesus, four or five hundred years before Jesus, there was a season where God's people were taken into slavery in Babylon. And while they were in Babylon, they ran the risk of losing their culture. Being consumed by this majority culture, they could lose their, their faith and their language and their tradition and their holidays. But there was a group of people in that season who said, let's stay set apart from the Babylonians. No, let's not act like them. Let's keep our religion and our language and our traditions and our holidays. Let's stay set apart. And the Hebrew term for set apart is peroshim, from which we get the Pharisees. They stayed separated from the Babylonian culture. You see this in the book of Daniel, where Daniel says, I want to eat a diet of my own culture and not the Babylonian diet. Daniel stays separate from the Babylonian culture. Well, by the time Jesus rolls around, the Pharisees are a respected group of people among the Jewish population. They held the identity of their people together. They kept their people pure. They care about honoring God by staying separate from sin and from sinners. They're respected, but they're feared. If a Pharisee decides that you are unclean, that you're a bad guy, you would be absolutely ostracized in society. So the Pharisees in Jesus' day are most concerned that Israelites stay pure. They stay separate from Gentiles and Romans and Samaritans. They stay clean of tax collecting and prostitution and adultery and thieving. They follow all the rules. They fast and they tithe and they do what they're supposed to do. Jesus' ministry is filled with stories about the Pharisees. I always find it curious when someone says, uh, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I mention the Pharisees, and they say, now who is that again? Because you can't know the story of Jesus without knowing the story of the Pharisees. They are on every page of the Gospels. When Jesus tells uh, the parable of the tenants who take over a vineyard and kill the vineyard owner's sons, that is a parable against the Pharisees. Jesus goes through a long list of condemnations of the Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees, in Matthew 23, and goes through a list of all the things they do wrong. That's the only group of people he ever does that to. He doesn't do it to tax collectors and Samaritans and sinners and prostitutes. He only picks on the Pharisees this way. When he tells his story of the runaway son, the son who wastes all his father's money and then comes back as a beggar, the older son who's mad at the younger son, 
who's followed all the rules and done what he was supposed to do. He's a Pharisee. Jesus includes the Pharisees in many of his parables. It's actually the Pharisees who will drag the woman caught in adultery in front of Jesus to see if he will have her put to death. The Pharisees are on every page using their religiosity to condemn other people, to make sure they cut out of society those who would be pollutants. And Jesus' ire, Jesus' anger, is raised more at the Pharisees than at any other group of people. So that's who they are. Uh, remember, I used this illustration last week. Let me go over it quickly again. In, in God's relationship with humanity, there have been three phases of God's law, of God's uh, relationship with humanity and how he holds us accountable. Phase one, the first phase was Eden, the Garden of Eden, where everything was perfect and humanity existed in an uninterrupted relationship with God. And we rejected that. We pushed God away and say, I want things on my terms, not on yours. God's plan B is the law. Follow the laws, and when you fail to, offer sacrifices. <coughs> Take animals from your flock and sacrifice them on the altar in the temple. God's plan B is law and sacrifice. If you want to do this on your own terms, let's see if you can follow all 600 of these commandments perfectly. And if not, keep offering sacrifices. God's plan C is the cross. God's plan C is grace. That when we believe Jesus died for us, he is the last and final sacrifice. His death takes upon the cross everything we deserve. All the punishment that should be ours went on him. So we live on this side of the cross. We live after the cross. When we believe in Jesus, we no longer have to justify ourselves by good works and obedience to the law. We're free when we have faith in Jesus, when we believe that he died for us and rose again. We live under grace. Why would you ever go back to living behind the cross on the other side and living under law? Why would you go back to that world in which there's all kinds of expectations of good behavior? and punishment for failure. God will rain down fire on those who are not faithful and sacrifice must be offered to pay in blood for sin. And that descends then into guilt and shame and consequently judgment and blame of other people. It's terrible on the other side of the cross. You and I as followers of Jesus live on this side of the cross. Why would we ever go back? Well, that's the Pharisees. The Pharisees are trying to live on the first side of the cross. They're trying to live under law. We are trying to be absolutely as legalistic and as pure and as righteous as we can. We'll offer the sacrifices we must offer and hold other people accountable for their wrongdoings because God's law is everything. They do not know grace. And that is why Jesus is always at odds with them. That's the, that's the uh, lay of the land in terms of God's relationship with humanity and God's uh, uh, stages of the law. Jesus would say, all the law boils down to this. Love God with everything you got inside of you and love your neighbor as yourself. And then view the law through the lens of love. Don't view love through the lens of the law. View the law through the lens of love. Don't view love through the lens of the law. And that is where he and the Pharisees are at odds. This is a heresy, a false teaching that Jesus marked off with cautionary tape when he said, 
Beware the yeast of the Pharisees. Yeast, when you put it in a, a loaf of dough, changes the shape of the whole thing. Just a little bit of yeast makes the bread rise. It takes it from what it would have been pita bread to making it a big loaf of bread. Just a little bit inside changes the shape of the whole thing. And Jesus says to his disciples, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. Don't even let a little bit of that self-righteous religious legalism creep inside of you because it will change your whole experience of faith and everything you say to the world about God. Don't even let a little of the yeast of the Pharisees creep in. He put cautionary tape around that. That is a wrong belief. Legalism is a heresy. As much as that's the case, in every generation, the church has reiterated the legalism of the Pharisees. We've done it in every season and in every generation, and it is still going on today. Let me tell you who the Pharisees are. <coughs> because remember, the Pharisees didn't think they were the bad guys. They thought they were the good guys. So they wouldn't have said, yeah, we're going to be remembered in the story of the Gospels as the, the enemies. We're going to be remembered as the heroes. And the same thing is true today. People in our churches who are Pharisees, who are legalists, think they're doing everything right. They don't look in the mirror and say, shame on me. They think they're on the right side. So let me name eight characteristics of a Pharisee. The one standing up in the front of the church praying, God, I do everything right. Thanks for making me this way and not like the sinners in the back of the church. Here are eight distinct mark, marks of Pharisees. And let me suggest that when we listen to messages, before we seek to apply them to someone else, let's use them to reflect on our own hearts. Number one, Pharisees do not perceive themselves as wrong. They perceive themselves as right. They perceive themselves on the side of justice and goodness and righteousness. So they have that confidence about them. Secondly, they aren't perceived publicly as doing evil. People don't necessarily see them as bad folks all the time. They just see them as particularly strict. Number three, behind that veneer of confidence and righteousness, they are actually very anxious people. They are worried that the world is falling apart and that the nation around them is not being faithful to God anymore. And if the nation stops being faithful to God, it will lose God's blessing and fall into decay. So they're not just concerned about their own sins. Now they're concerned about everyone else's because everyone else's sins will lead to the fall of their nation. So other people must be held accountable as well. They are a particularly anxious and stressed people because they are always concerned that the world is falling apart. Number four, this usually comes because at some point along the way, they have had an experience of someone violating what would have been healthy boundaries. The Pharisees are often products of a childhood or youthful trauma in which someone crossed over lines that they should not have. And when somebody goes through childhood traumas, one of the greatest promises that religion has to offer is setting divine boundaries around bad behavior. Part of the appeal of religion is that not only is bad behavior bad, God actually hates it. And God will hold people accountable for it. There's a, a sweet promise of justice in religion. And Pharisees are attracted to that. The problem is, 
while legalism might make them feel safe, they still have trouble trusting. They still have trouble loving. And legalism cannot help with that. Number five, they're attracted to other Pharisees. Pharisees come in groups, not in individuals. I, I was thinking about this. You know, we uh, have, in the English language, we have different words for groupings of things. There's a herd of cows or a flock of seagulls or a, a pod of dolphins. Uh, owls travel in parliaments. Did you know that? It's called a parliament of owls. I've never seen more than one owl at a time, but if there were two, they would be a parliament of owls. I began to think to myself, what do you call a group of Pharisees? I think you have to call them a jury a jury of Pharisees. Pharisees come in groups. They come in juries. They like to travel together. So that way it feels like they're all the more right because they have people around them. And outsiders seem to be a little bit more lonely and less protected. This is why the Pharisees could look at Jesus and call him a heretic, call him a blasphemer because he was alone. Whereas there were plenty of them, the Pharisees made up half of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the first century Jewish world. They travel together in groups called juries. Number six, they preach a gospel of sin management. They are not so much concerned about the beauty of life within the kingdom or the love and graciousness that God wants to pour through us. They are most concerned about dealing with sin, stopping it, preventing it, and getting rid of it. And they'd say, well, this is just logical. Sin stops you from doing what God wants. You have to get rid of sin. It's sin that put Jesus up on the cross. So we better stop sinning. <coughs> if we don't stop sinning, we might lose our kingdom, lose our nation. They preach a gospel of sin management. And the Pharisee listening to this message right now is thinking to themselves, wait a minute, but sin is bad, right? We're not supposed to sin. Because they are more obsessed with sin than life in the kingdom. Jesus came to set people free from sin and from the law. Pharisees are still obsessed with it. Number seven, they're more concerned with other people's sins than their own. And number eight, they like church. Pharisees love church, and you can often find them there. It is a challenge to get together a group of followers of Jesus who want to love a lost world in Jesus' name without Pharisees sneaking their way in. This is why in John 10, Jesus says, the Pharisees are like somebody who sneaks into a sheep pen, not, not through the gate. They come in another way to try to steal the sheep. And he calls them thieves. And he says, the thief comes in to kill and steal and destroy. And he's talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees sneak into the gathering of those who are faithful to try to lead others into legalism. So those are eight descriptors of the Pharisees. That's who they are. And that ought to ring a few bells. You ought to be able to identify people in our world today who are Pharisees. But before we're quick to apply to other people, let's use that for self-reflection and pray, Jesus, don't let the yeast of the Pharisees settle in my heart. Set me free from legalism and give me a passion for loving lost people. Because what the Pharisees do is like this. Imagine a friend of yours, a very rich friend of yours, owns a, an exclusive vacation resort, a, a getaway at the beach. 
They, they own the whole property and the buildings. And in this beautiful resort, there's seven swimming pools and there are restaurants and there's beachfront property and places where you can watch the sunset. It's beautiful and gorgeous. And aren't you lucky <coughs> your friend owns this place? And your friend decides to invite you and a group of other people to come and stay at this all-inclusive resort for free. And so they're giving you a tour of the property, and they're showing you the swimming pools, and they're showing you the accommodations, and they're giving out keys so you and your group of friends can stay there together. And the owner of this place says, I really just want you to be happy in this little paradise that I have. I really just want you to enjoy it. But one of your particularly attentive friends in this group says, but there are rules, right? And the owner of the place says, uh, well, what do you mean? And your friend says, well, there are, there's water on the ground around the swimming pools, and it seems like somebody could slip and get hurt. So we should probably have a rule that there's no running around the swimming pool so nobody gets hurt. And the owner of the resort says, well, yes, that's a good rule. Please don't run around the swimming pools. And your friend then says, I will set up guard towers to keep an eye on people to make sure they don't run around the swimming pools. And the owner of the resort says, um, okay, but I really just want you to enjoy your time here. I want, I want this to be a gift for you. But your friend is now on a roll. And your friend says, okay, but what about littering? If people take their trash and throw it all over the resort, the place will be a dump and no one will like it anymore. That should be a rule too. No littering, right? And the owner of the resort says, well, yes, please, please don't litter. And your friend says, good, I will set up a system of demerits and I will penalize people for littering and they will lose privileges. And furthermore, there should be other rules. No running, no littering. You should walk on the right side of the sidewalk so we don't run into each other. Don't leave your towels on the chairs. Clean up after yourself. No noise after 9 p.m. I will write all these down and put them on signs around the entire property. At this point, everyone is uncomfortable. The owner of the resort insists I really want you to enjoy your time here. But your legalistic friend is convinced the only way anyone can enjoy their time is if the rules protect everyone. And that's the story of the Pharisees. And sadly, it is the story of many a modern church. Many churches have been filled with the yeast of the Pharisees. And there are people who, by thinking they are going to create a safer world, have gone around and penalize so many people with legalism and laws and rules that no one wants to get near them anymore. If your friend has their way with that resort, people are just going to find somewhere else to go for vacation. And if your church has been filled with legalism and self-righteousness and condemnation, people are going to find other places to go. The church in the United States of America has been declining in, in attendance since the 1960s. And it's not because of atheism. And it's not even because of secularism. It's because Christians have failed to live out the love of Jesus Christ, which seeks out lost and broken people with a promise of hope and redem redemption, with a vision for a paradise of life in the kingdom that begins right now if we turn away from our former life and live into life with Jesus. But the legalists get obsessed with harping on the former life and everything wrong that has been done and never set people free to live life in the kingdom. Jesus said it as clearly as he could. He said the Pharisees are children of the devil. They keep people out of heaven and then they themselves don't even get in. 
If they manage to convert someone to Phariseeism, they make them every bit as much a child of hell as they are. These are the words of Jesus. Legalism is that destructive to a life of faith. Let's return to the vision that Jesus laid out for us. He has this to say. I love you. I love you so much that I died for you. I took the cost of your sin into my body. Come to me and find freedom. Don't seek to be justified by the law because by obeying the law, no one will be justified. Instead, come live life by the Spirit and I will set you free. The good news is, if you've been burned by religious hypocrites who were self-righteous and judgmental, though they themselves were probably no better off than you, good news is, Jesus hates that. He didn't come to create that church. That's not what he wants. He's on the side of the tax collector in the back of the church praying, Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I'm a mess. I can't do this on my own. That's the person to whom Jesus is drawn because those who humble themselves will be exalted. On the other hand, if you realize that you've gotten caught in the trap of legalism, if you realize that the yeast of the Pharisees has worked its way in, there's still a chance to live life with Jesus. Remember in the story of the runaway son, the older brother is a Pharisee. He's mad at the younger brother who comes back and is accepted by the father. He's mad at the father for accepting the runaway son. But the father goes to the older son in the backyard and says, hey, I'm throwing a party for your brother because he was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. But you come too. You come too. If you've been caught in a life of pharisaical legalism, and you know you've lived self-righteously because you are afraid of a broken world. The door to the party, the door to the kingdom is still open to you. Come and do life with Jesus. And for all of us, we ought to bear in mind a, a moment from history um, that you may have never heard of before. You, you've probably heard of the golden rule. Jesus taught, do to other people what you would want them to do to you. And this is called the golden rule. Um, you may not realize why it's called the golden rule. It's called the golden rule because in about the third century, a Roman ruler named uh, Alexander Severus heard that teaching and loved it. And he had it inscribed in gold on his palace walls. Now, he didn't believe in Jesus. He didn't decide to follow Jesus. <coughs> he didn't commit himself to the teacher who had created this teaching. He just liked the teaching itself. So he had it inscribed in gold on his palace walls. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's why it became called the golden rule. We should bear in mind, that's what the Pharisees do. They teach the teachings of God, the words of the scripture, even the teachings of Jesus, and they're happy to put them in gold across their walls. But they forget the teacher from whom they came. 
we should bear in mind that it's not the, the principles that 